Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and you are listening to the Makers of Minnesota. I am pleased to launch season three. A couple of you have been like, hey, what's going on? You haven't put a podcast out for a couple of weeks. I took some time off, to be perfectly honest with you, because I've just been trying to find my way a little bit like the rest of you. You know, I started this podcast over 160 episodes ago, and I've been doing it for about three years. And the marketplace for makers has really changed. The challenges have changed. The types of opportunities have changed. And I just was really struggling with like, hey, is this still something that feels good and that is going to help elevate makers in Minnesota? And it's been harder to find people to have as guests because a lot of you have gone back to your day jobs, right? Where you were thinking about maybe going off on your own and spending full time on your your projects. Now a lot of you are back in corporate America trying to do both and ride out this pandemic. So I was really feeling a little adrift and wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I took a couple weeks off. I took three weeks off and I got in our van. We're these crazy like van people. And we started just driving around the country and I started, you know, going to different places. It's COVID. So a lot of things are closed, but we still have to go to the grocery store, right? So I'd go into a grocery store and I'd be looking for like hot sauce or some local meat. And I just realized that the fire is still in my belly of helping people tell their stories about how they started, why they started, what gets them out of bed every day. And I just decided that this is still something that I am interested in and that does still fuel me. So we're going to start our season three. We are going to start with a baker, which is always something that in my, like back of my mind, I'm terrible at baking, but I've admired bakers so much. And we have such great baking talent in the Twin Cities. So I'm here with Ann Andrus. She is the owner of Honey and Rye, and they have a location over on Excelsior. And Ann, welcome to season three. You didn't know you were going to be like the inaugural guest of season three, did you? Hi. No, I had no idea, but I am thrilled at the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're actually the perfect guest as it turns out, because I didn't say anything and I didn't put anything out on the Facebooks or the Instagrams, but I was just really kind of struggling with like, how am I going to keep this going? And is it relevant? And then somebody sent me an email and actually, no, it was an Instagram. And I don't even know if I can find it right now, but they were like, yeah, you know, I just wanted you to know, I just found your podcast and I've been listening to all these stories and I've always wanted to start a candy company and I really found it inspiring. So all of that to say, welcome to be the first guest of season three. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. And, uh, and just to say, thanks for having me because I really, one of the things that is challenging for small local businesses to do is get our story out and what makes us so special and important and vital to our community. So I think this is a great, a great venue for that. And I'm excited to be a part of it. So Anne, you've had the bakery now for, is it like six years? Seven this month. Yep. This October seven official. I know it feels like a hurdle. When you decided to start the bakery, what were you doing before? Were you working in other shops? Yeah, I actually came directly from Common Roots Cafe. So that was my that was my spot before this. And previous to that, I was there about three years. Uh, previous to that, I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. I had Did you grow t- up there? 
Nope. I'm from central Minnesota. So kind of Brainerd Lakes area, Little Falls. Sure. So how did you go from a Brainerd Lakes area kid to being in San Francisco, the Bay Area? I'm assuming it's through baking. It wasn't actually. I uh, attended St. Kate's um, College of St. Catherine and I studied abroad in Spain and I met a dear friend. Yes. And she was actually from Ohio, but she was moving to California. And I said, what an opportunity for adventure. So I moved out there with her. So that was rewind, you know, 15 some years. And we lived, I lived there for, yeah, six, six or seven years. But I did attend the San Francisco baking and pastry school there. It worked in nonprofit for a while and then had a change of pace and decided to pursue, pursue baking. When you decided to go to school, it's funny because you know, like if you decide to be a chef and you start out working as in a kitchen, you know, you can work your way up and never actually have gone to like culinary school. But I feel like with pastry and for bakers that that really is a something that most of them do. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say it does tend to lean more that way versus versus cooks and chefs. For me, it was uh, my first job I got in the kitchen was in a cupcake and cookie shop. It was Tea Cake Bakehouse. And I learned cupcakes and cookies very well. And I did that for a few years. And it was when I realized that's what I wanted to pursue. I had a difficult time finding a job that they would take me on with relatively limited experience. I wanted to learn bread. Um, and most most places just said no, especially in the Bay Area, you can imagine they really wanted you coming in with with more base knowledge of being in the kitchen. So I made the commitment and just said, I'm going to invest and, and choose the school route. What was it about wanting to cook breads? Like, tell me about why. Like, I think people in theory want to cook breads. And Lord knows during the pandemic, we've all cooked some breads, right? I just ate a loaf <laughs> that I made yesterday that it was in the freezer because I made it a few months back and it was like, so it was the worst looking loaf I've ever seen, but it tasted good. So what was it like that was bread specific after cakes and cupcakes? Yeah, I think for some reason it was, it felt like next level. It felt like that was out of the realm of what, what I knew and what most home bakers knew that I, I just, it was a little bit unattainable and that somehow felt like it would give me, I don't know if it would give me credit or give me, you know, yeah. just round the knowledge and feel like I am a baker. I, you know, I, I have this mastered. So I think for me, that was part of the interest and push to explore it. But as you can, you know, with, a, like you said, a lot of people kind of exploring that world, it, um, the hands-on part, I think just the feel of it and the concept of kneading the bread and, you know, really being in with it. I think there's some magic to that. Although you quickly find out it's very different when it turns into production. (laughs) You know, well, that's an interesting comment because it goes from being like, first of all, you were at Common Roots for three years. In the grand scheme of the life of your being a chef, a pastry chef, that's not a ton of time before you started your own place. And many people have this huge hobby and love of baking, but you know, to take it from that to an actual business, to take any make made product, actually, like it's all fun to, you know, make it and then it's another level to like go and do the farmers markets. And then it's another level to like, really be producing on a massive scale. Tell me about that process. And do you like where it's led you? For sure. Yeah, it is. It's so interesting to me the how, how, 
what am I trying to say? How scaling up can be different for different places, even within the baking industry. Uh, I talk a lot about how we are small in size and we are local and we like to stay kind of rooted to things. And um, just to, to look around a lot of other bakeries, how it doesn't take much to you know, get to that next level of where you do have to start segmenting your baking production out and just the volume you have to be doing in order to be profitable. So it was for me that it was very eye-opening. I would say, honestly, the last seven years, and I continue to learn from it, uh, just just the the amount of what we have to do to sell in order to make make the margins that we need to, to make something worthwhile and selling. It's just a totally different feeling going from home home size and portions to the volume that you need to, you know, be productive. I think about like a cookie, right? And ba- a baker at your level is going to just use like the best ingredients, right? You're going to use the best butter. You're going to use the best chocolate and you're going to make a chocolate chip cookie for me. That's going to be, I don't know, probably three inches cook, three inch cookie, right? Like I, I struggle. I think in my mind, like how do they make any money? Because it probably costs you like a dollar to make that cookie with those ingredients. And then you can only sell a cookie for what, like three bucks tops, I guess. And even then, if the cookie's not big enough, you're kind of like, wow, a $3 cookie. Is that kind of where you find yourself? It is. And I, I feel like a lot of people would say even in baking probably has a little bit higher profit margins than restaurant um, in general. But it really, when it comes down to it, with what we are willing to pay for food, it's it's tough. And with what, especially when you're committed to your values of wanting to offer the local products and the, the organic offerings and really have the highest quality of things and pay your staff a livable wage and offer health benefits and do all that stuff too, because that both factors really do eat away at much, much more. <laughs> whatever profit there is. Yeah. I mean, it really, it, it's the difficult part of it that it's hard to translate that to the people who really, when you have an idea in your mind and say, I, how am I going to pay $3 for a brownie when I could buy a box of it for $3? Some people want that difference. <laughs> I want it as a consumer and I'm fine about spending more and I'm fine about, you know, knowing that those ingredients come from that. And we have a mutual friend in common who I won't name, but she has an ice cream shop and she and I have talked about like, you know, how organic is so important to her, but that there are some ingredients that she could put in her ice cream and that aren't organic, but that would make fun ice cream or make a good product. And so she's always walking that line of like, do I ride the full organics? Do I compromise at all so that I can maybe add some different things to my profile? And I guess I would say to her and I'd say to you, sometimes you got to make some money and it's okay to do that too. Like pick your battles. Yeah. And it's a really great thing I think to talk about, especially in current times that that's where a lot of the industry is finding themselves. You know, for me in starting this, I mean, talking about a profitable business was honestly a little bit taboo that I was like, it's about the heart. It's about the community, the passion, fulfilling the dreams you know, and yes, it's about all of that. But at the end of the day, if we don't make enough to pay our staff, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> the sustainability too of you as a human and you as a business owner, that you can't create jobs, you can't create a healthy work environment, you can't create any of those things unless you can make enough money to do that yourself too, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of those things that, again, is being brought to light right now with like, what, what is on the other side of that? You know, I, a lot, I would have to assume of other um, fellow industry business owners, it's not as glamorous as it might seem. (laughs) We're in a pretty unglamorous time. I will tell you that a lot of folks got into the business and it was a good time. And we've had a really good run in the Twin Cities and some great entrepreneurs and makers and And we're all in kind of a gritty time. And I guess, you know, we're not all going to make it. Some of us, we're just not going to be able to do that with our family situations, the commitments we have. But um, I do know, and I, this is why I keep doing the podcast is because I feel like that entrepreneurial spirit of what got us here, that's not going to go away. It's just going to simmer and percolate and maybe take a chill pill until the industry can kind of regroup because you're still going to have all of these vacant spaces. You're still going to have all these people that want these products. We just have to like be on pause. If we talk about um, like, and you don't have to talk about your specific situation, but one of the things I'm finding kind of interesting about restaurants and bakeries and all these commercial spaces is I have heard of very few actual landlords that are working with people to get them to the end of this. Have you had that experience with your group of friends? Yeah, I would say it's been different. I I do think there's been kind of a variety of responses to it. Uh, I would say I, you know, firsthand have seen both ends of the spectrum, very, very willing and wanting and non-negotiable. Yeah. (laughs) And it was a tough spot. It's interesting to me because I just assumed, and you know, I'm a business person too, but so you have these spaces, you have these leases with these tenants, they have been shut down or they can't do business or they can do business in such a modified level that you're essentially just going to drive them out of business if that's your plan. So it would make more sense to try to find a way to like package some of that into the back end of the lease or find a way to get us through this coronavirus time. But I also understand that some of these business owners maybe are not able to carry the debt load, but it's going to, it's trickling down, right? So it's trickling down from the bank who holds the loan to the developer who has the lease to the tenants who aren't able to pay to the producers that are making your bread, your eggs, your, your ingredients that you're using to the farmers. And no one is really coming out on top in this scenario. So it seems like we all have to compromise to get to the end. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that really is, you know, just to lay it out like that, that is how we're all affected. And I think it is another unfortunate time. The, you know, folks that have the money to continue to put into it can and will. And the those that don't will, you know, either close up shop or... I don't know. Yeah. And that is, and I've, some people that own their own buildings are obviously in better positions. Without a doubt. Yep. So when you got into this and you're making cookies and cupcakes and you're deciding that you're going to open honey and rye, do you remember that joy and where did that come from? Like, what was it that you just loved about the baking process and having someone eat a cookie in front of you? Yeah, it was really a game changer for me because I was working at a nonprofit organization, which I loved. They worked, it's a fair trade organization. And I was all about the mission and thought that was it. But I sat at a desk and answered emails and phone calls all day. So for me, a big change with 
when I went into baking was just physical movement, creativity, having a product at the end of the day, and really like a visual, tangible, edible product, getting to just say that was my work. That's what I did and, and feel good about that. So I think just that, that pride and that connection with, with what, with what my time was going into is a big piece of it. And then of course, with baking, many of us, I feel like that are, that follow that passion for it really do find the true joy and like in the, the, the reciprocal side of it, the other side, whoever is getting to enjoy it and eat it. So uh, yeah, I think that was, I always, you know, was the kind of person to bring, bring the birthday cake, always showing up with desserts and cookies. Um, There is something just special to, to getting to feed people and, and see that sort of joy and connection that, that they have with it. When you grew up, did you have like a grandma or a mom or dad that baked or where did that joy originate from as a little kid? Yeah, definitely a grandma that baked. I actually have some of her old books. I was just going through and seeing her like handwritten cursive notes in it, trying to translate Cursive. Does anyone even write (laughs) cursive anymore? My, my mom definitely, so I did baking with my dad cooked. I feel like more, we, I'm a family of eight kids. So there was always, you know, we were all meals were done at home and I, we had a little bit of looseness with exploring in the kitchen. So I feel like it was whatever I wanted to pursue and try my hand at, which was mostly Nestle Toll House, you know, cookie recipe, just those over and over again. Uh, but I think, and why yeah, not? I, I know. <laughs> why mess with a good thing? Yeah. I I feel like there, I feel like I just like the sense of being, being in the kitchen, the creation and, and the getting to share it with others, share the experience with others. So when you started Honey and Rye, you had a real, I felt like a real brand point of view and you had like really good design. Who helped you kind of get all of that when you launched the first bakery? Yeah. I opened a business partner and she was the front end of that and the marketing design side. She was a graphic designer or is a graphic designer. And she left the bakery after about a year and a half. I'm curious about that. Did you guys have a mutual parting of the ways or did she just decide it wasn't a good fit? Because that's another part. A lot of like baking relationships, you have like the creative and then you have the business side. And sometimes that doesn't always work out. Yeah, it was full disclosure really difficult. It was a really difficult road and a huge life lesson for me. Uh, We had been friends for a long time and I was so fortunate to have her on board when we started because she had such a skill set that I did not. My interest was the kitchen, the back half, and that was the agreement. She'd run everything else. And it was, as you can imagine, for a graphic designer, such a lifestyle change of being food industry startup. And we were both 30-ish, you know, really like trying our hand at this, doing our best, being scrappy. But I, I don't think either of us knew any better. And I, I think it just really threw, threw her for, for a loop of what starting your own business in the industry, in the restaurant industry um, could be. So it was a long road to, the, you know, to, 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 for closure, I guess, with that. But it really gave me good perspective on on things and made me really say, like, am I in this? Is this, am I going to follow this and pursue this? Is this still what I want to do? And here I am. <laughs> were you able to salvage the friendship? You know, we're not really in touch anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It was that's hard too. It was. And it was one of those things that I think I had originally hoped for, but it's just, you know, when things come down to, to money, and split, you know, splitting things up, it, it definitely felt like a divorce that didn't, 
It's funny because, so you get that in business partnerships, you get that in divorce. You also get that when people die in families, like money is sort of this esoteric thing until there's a pot of it sitting on a table and everyone's Mm -hmm. hand is trying to grab for what's theirs. That is as a business person, really interesting. And I read something today and, you know, this was in the context of talking about like, frankly, white men and the patriarchy and business. A lot of business is controlled by white men. And someone said something like, well, no one ever gets rich. That's not a white man. And I I was like, well, I don't, I think that's really wrong. I don't agree with that because I still feel like patriarchy aside that in an entrepreneurial setting, a lot of us can figure this out and we can have successful businesses and we can get air quotes rich. You know, are we ever going to be Donald Trump rich or not rich, depending on how you look at him? Probably not. But like rich and wealth means a lot of things to different people. And I want my entrepreneurs that are running these businesses to be successful. And I don't like that we've just sort of like, oh, well, no entrepreneurs can be successful if they're not playing that corporate greed game. Success can mean lots of things, don't you think? Oh my gosh, I do. It's so loaded. It's one of the things I'm currently working on because it means so many different things to so many people. And I I personally am, am, am really trying to examine what does it mean to me? Because I think a lot of people would look and say, honey, right, got a great thing going on. And I have my moments when it's tough to pay the bills or we have a crisis of a winter to, to, to question that and say, is this successful? Does this feel successful? Is this, are we hitting the mark that we need to in order to, you know, thrive as a business? And I don't, I still haven't figured out what it, exactly it means for me, but I think there's a lot of different factors that to your point, can you, yes, you can achieve that. You can achieve wealth and richness in, in other ways. And I think too, like there's a weird perception, you know, most restaurants, the profit margin is from three to 10%. So I'm not sure what that is in baking. If you're saying it's more, maybe it's, you know, 10 to 20%. I don't even know if it would be that high, but is it, is it about that range? I mean, ideally, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. we don't, we don't see that, but I think, yeah, I think, I think it's closer to get to that. Okay. So then like everybody has this perception of like, oh, well, these restaurateurs, these chefs, like they're so wealthy and they're doing so great and they're living high on the hog. What you don't see is like the investors. What you don't see is the debt. What you don't see is the price of food costs going up, particularly because of this pandemic. And then you take out, you know, 70% of your business because we are forced to stay home and we can't congregate the way we used to. And God, I just miss going to a coffee shop or a bakery and having a cup yeah. of decent coffee and a pastry. Yeah, I know. It feels like a luxury at <laughs> this time. <laughs> so as we move forward, what does that look like? Like, do you anticipate in the next year that people are going to go into coffee shops and recreate that experience? Are you able to, I don't even know, like, do you put up a tent and heaters and do you just do takeout? What are your thinking long-term? Yeah, for us personally, it, we, you know, I think it's going to look different for everybody, of course. For us, we, once the pandemic started, we immediately shifted to online and call ahead orders. 
we're doing pickups in a vestibule, which we luckily had a vestibule to do that in. And our plan is to maintain that for now. Uh, but I'd love, I'd love to be able to open the doors again once we're feeling good about it, stay, safety with staff and customer wise. I don't know if I see a ton changing long term because we still want to put out a patio. We still want to let customers in the store. Like that's all still going to happen eventually. But we're for sure leaning on the play it safe side until until we feel better about it, whenever that, whatever that looks like. That I don't know. Yet. Nobody does. How hard was it for you to do the online ordering piece? Like how did you figure all that out? Oh my goodness. So it was difficult because that is not my wheelhouse. I thankfully have an amazing uh, management crew and team of support. Uh, two of my closest managers, they, they kind of got things going right away. One has a capability for on, setting up the online store, which was something I laugh. We, for like two years now, we've talked about doing it. And I think they had it up and running within the week. But the learning curve, especially for our customers and for our staff to say, okay, we have to do this online. Well, we have a lot of tweaking of the systems. It was, I mean, I don't know how many times I was like standing there in tears being like, why? (laughs) Why is this so hard? But it was, was, I mean, I don't think people totally understand what a shift it was for all of us, you know, on the inside, even though we're still baking the same products and trying to sell the same products, the, the management, the um, inventory management that we have to do of it in order to have the product available online, but for people to call in and order on the spot. Um, it was, it's just a lot of logistical detail, which is like the farthest from what I, what I enjoy. <laughs> You mentioned something too that I think we're going to look back at this time and this is what we're going to recognize. You said like, oh, we talked about doing it for two years, but we never did. I feel like all of you entrepreneurs out there, any of this like big stuff that you never got to, like online sales, like maybe doing more training, more this, more that, more video conferencing, whatever it is, you all had to like figure that out in a week to four weeks. And that's going to be something we're all going to look back on and be like, wow, you know, just even doing a podcast. Like I used to have you come and we would sit in my studio and we would do the podcast and I'd record it and I'd have microphones. I mean, the the quality isn't great because we're doing Zoom calls now. But if we want to continue to work and continue to have conversation and connect with people, we've had to just change how we do everything. That was in addition to getting up. Like, how early do you have to get up? Because that's I'm also fascinated with baker hours. Yeah, I structured our baking schedule so bakers start at four thirty. It could be way, way, way worse, but that's when that's when our earliest bakers get there. So that is you're having to do all this other stuff plus the literal like producing of the product that was what you did before anyway. Well, and on top of the fact that we like everyone else went from a staff of, you know, two dozen reduced down to about six of us. So trying to run the same, same level of production. I mean, we reduced our hours, of course we had to, but it was a skeleton crew team to say the least. So trying to be that, I mean, I was in the bakery. I don't even know how often, but also trying to relearn systems, recreate or create systems that we just had no idea. It was. I think too, it's kind of sad because so many good employees got left by the wayside for no other reason than just, you know, capacity. And as we record this podcast, we're in October. I'm worried that people are going to have to cut staff again because they're going to try to get through the winter with just curbside, which I understand, but I worry about those servers and those front of the house people. Yeah. And it, 
it is super unfortunate. And I, I mean, it's, I would say it's coming. I don't see a way around it with, I mean, I think the seasonality of Minnesota, we brace ourselves for the winter, no matter what January, February, March are so tough. And it, yeah, I don't, I just don't see any that changing this year. (laughs) So what does the bakery feel like today? Like, you know, someone comes up to the vestibule to pick up their cookies and, and what does that feel like today? And are you still getting that warm, fuzzy feeling from those customers that have supported you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, my instinct is to say it feels almost normal ish because we're so in our groove. I'm so proud of my team. Like they really, you know, after the initial, like really difficult couple months, like got into the swing of things. We've improved so many systems. So we're, we're generally operating pretty smoothly these days when a lot of our staff was able to come back. So I think, and I'm hoping on the customer side, it's pretty straightforward, pretty it's in and out safe, you know, safe as can be, but I know we're all missing the, our, our regulars, the connection, you know, the face to face, which is exactly what we're trying to cut out. That has been, you know, waves through the window are fun and little notes on the tickets and all that is appreciated, but it does, it does feel different. I think, especially for my staff who work there because of those relationships. Yeah. What is your specialty at the bakery? Like, what do you think are your top three things? We have sold more scones than I ever thought fathomable. We, and we do a sweet and savory version. So that's always, I feel like we are one of those spots where people just say like, oh, I thought I hated scones or I, aren't they usually dry and like this? So we do, and we rotate the flavors. So that's fun. I think it kind of keeps people excited. Pumpkin season is obviously just around the corner with our pumpkin scones. So a lot of those, but we do, let's see, our croissants are really popular too. We have a variety of those. Monkey bread is a classic. Banana bread's a staple. A lot of things you'd recognize and be excited about, feel familiar. That's kind of the, the wheelhouse we like to stay in. And are there other makers that you work with or that you buy their products that you want to shout out? Like, is there anybody that you just love? <laughs> of course, yeah. Uh, Heidi over at Serious Jams, she is the sweetest. We love her and we love her products. We sell that retail and we use it in our cakes. And we, let's see, we recently started carrying um, uh, Humble Nut Butter. Oh, I I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So they're in St. Louis Park too. So we connected at an event. So that was right before the pandemic. We started offering that. So it's been, um, it's been a little bit, uh, but then, and we have Sweet Science ice cream down at our Gray's location. A lot of people might not know that. That was a new addition this summer. What else? We offer Laurie Hill meats. We love those guys. Yeah, they're pretty great. What do you use mm-hmm. their meats in? We have a breakfast sandwich that we use. We top with ham. Um, and then a lot of times our quiche rotates and we use it for that. We don't currently have our savory bread pudding, but we use their sauce in that. And that is super yummy. I feel like the sauce. Yum, that sounds it. delicious. Can we talk about quiche a second? Yeah. Your quiche is fantastic. And I've <laughs> always wondered, like, what is the secret to getting it like high and custardy, like almost mm-hmm. like the, the French uh, make quiche? Yeah. The, our recipe does involve a bit of cream and whole milk, a blend of that. And then we use a lot of eggs and yolks. So I feel like the cream and the yolks really up that rich sort of custardy factor. (laughs) Yeah, it's delicious and just delicious crust. And I, 
quiche is so funny because it's so like 1980s yet it's still <laughs> delicious and every time I see it on a menu I'm like oh I totally want that quiche Oh yeah. And it's so funny because it was when we were looking at opening the bakery, we were kind of quizzing some friends and we're like, oh, would quiche be a thing you would get? And it didn't really hit many people's radar. And I was like, what if we call it egg bake? Would that do it? Like, oh yeah. Okay. Now I know what you mean. (laughs) That's funny. So what did you end up calling it? Do you call it quiche or egg bake? We do call it quiche. We do call it quiche, but my mom still, when she'll drive down, it took a while for the transition, but she's like, oh, that egg bake is just, just divine. Fantastic. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you starting out season three with me. Just want to tell you to hang in there. I know these are tough times for everybody, but if you use your street smarts and your compass of what got you to what you loved and just keep retuning into that you will make the right decisions, not only for you, but for your team. And they might be hard. They might not include, you know, being here a year from now, but it will include then releasing them to do what the next thing is that they're supposed to do. Like there is a karmic space in the universe that all this will come together for everyone. We just, you know, who knew the pandemic and who knew it'd be mismanaged and who knew everything. You just got to keep moving forward, right? Yeah, no, I absolutely appreciate that. I hang in there has been one of my least favorite sayings, uh, but onward, I feel like really is more where we're at. Let's just. And are you a pivoter? Because that's really become a word. People are just like, oh, I am a little exhausted by it, but I find myself using it here and there. I'm like, what are we going to shift to next? What can we? Yes, <laughs> about <things>. shift. <laughs> I like shift better than pivot. Thanks for being my guest today, Anne. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Yeah, and it is Honey and Rye, and you can find them in Excelsior, and you can order online at honeyandrye.com, and yep. you should order things like cakes and scones and cookies and how far in advance and bread, sorry, how far in advance do you need to order for like a custom cake or something like that? For custom special orders, we usually ask for 48 hours. Okay, great. Cause I, that's the other thing. There's so many celebrations. Yes. They're kind of going uncelebrated. We've done, I, we've never done as many cakes as we have during the last, last since pandemics. <laughs> Yeah. So make sure that you call and order those. Thanks, Anne. Thanks so much, Stephanie.